This podcast contains content and language not suitable for some listeners. Welcome to Oddities and Curiosities, a podcast about murder, the paranormal, and other oddities sure to pique your curiosity. We are Amanda and Brittany. My voice cracked. (laughs) (laughs) I have the sexy phlegm going on. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Friends reference if you know, you know. (laughs) Hi, friends. It's so cute. (laughs) I'm still recovering. Fine. It's fine. We love your um, sexy, raspy voice. Yeah? Yeah. I'm here for it. Okay. I did half of what season two. With- I started to say, I think we've they've experienced us in many forms. So, and they're still here. They're still here. Hi, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's episode seventy three. I love that word. It's so much fun. I know it makes me feel fancy, mm-hmm. even though it's not a fancy thing. No. And it's, it's a crazy thing. If you don't know what it is, don't worry. We'll enlighten you. Mm-hmm. It's fine. And then you'll love saying the word too, and you can sound all fancy and French and shit. Yeah, just Frenchy like shit. Frenchy shit. <laughs> um, Speaking of Frenchy shit, it's yeah. hump day. And this is why we're podcasters and yeah. not musicians. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's our hump day treat? Okay, so today it's me. Hi. Hi. So, we kind of stepped away from doing the local places thing for a while, so I'm trying to jump back into that. Mm-hmm. We had food from Abby Singer's Bistro in had. downtown Shreveport. Yeah, it's gone. Had. It's gone. We couldn't even wait. Like, And y'all probably would appreciate the fact that we went ahead and ate it, because we were smacking and oh, going yeah. mm, over and over again. Over and over. It was a thing. Mm. So... Abby Singer's Bistro, if y'all don't know, um, it's on Texas Street in downtown Shreveport, and it's above Robinson Film Center, the uh, movie theater downtown. Yes. Two very great places to go. Yes. Go to all those places. Mm-hmm. They have a balcony. They have, like, cocktails. They have uh, seasonal cocktails, and they do them for special occasions, holidays, things like that. Um yes. They're always really good. They have different desserts. They do dessert of the day type things. I'm here for that. And... My favorite dish from there is what we had for dinner tonight. Yeah. We had their shrimp and grits. Damn it. It's so good. I love shrimp and grits, but because I'm the picky eater that I am, Mm -hmm. I don't like tomato-based shrimp and grits. So there's person. I don't do the red sauce. It's okay. Theirs is a Mm, cream-based sauce. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Were you remembering? My mouth's starting to water again. <laughs> we ate it really fast. I might want to lick my bowl. <laughs> Maybe. But it's so good. If you ever have the opportunity to try it, like everything I've ever eaten from there is amazing. And then we wouldn't be us if we weren't drinking. <laughs> yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really bad. It d- I promise it's not a problem, but Friday night is our... It's um, our thing. It's our mom and wine time. Mm-hmm. So, because we are doing foilet du. Yes. And I wanted to continue to sound fancy in French. Mm-hmm. The wine that I brought was Menage a Trois. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. A little menage. Yes. It's a Menage a Trois Moscato. Mm-hmm. Sweet white blend. Let me just tell y'all what it says. Let me tell you. Yeah. 
It says, notes of pineapple, peach, and honey. All my favorites. Deliciously opulent, indulgent, <laughs> sweet wine, ripened in the California sun. Mm. It's very poetic. Very poetic. And it and tastes it sounds awesome. exactly how it tastes. And I don't remember the exact price because I bought this a few weeks ago. But I want to say it's in the like $9.99 yeah. to $12.99 range. Definitely under 15 Yeah. So this is one of my more expensive wines that I keep <laughs> in the fridge. <laughs> because normally it's a giant bottle of Barefoot. But I bought it and didn't open it and thought today was the day for this. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing. And it's delicious. Mm-hmm. It Drink goes wine very and well. Eating grits. Classy shit. We Southern. Mm. That's what we do. We put in that little Southern <laughs> French twist on it. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so go to the socials and you can see the photos of that because you will want to. And let your mouth water as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's definitely worth it. Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Twitter too. Yeah, there's it's, a Twitter. It's still in there. You can go there. Not sure what you find. But you can go there. <laughs> you, you can go down that rabbit hole if you would like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's jump into it. Okay. Okay. What you got? So, my case is a little lighter than last week, but there is a trigger warning. A minor dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not a baby. It's not a little kid, but it's still a minor dies in mine. So, just. Okay. But that's the worst part of it. Okay. Okay. Well, great. So. Still better than. Well, better than last week. It's yeah. better than last it's, week. Yeah. It's still. Oh, it still sucks. It's, yeah. <laughs> Death sucks. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. So my case is on Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. <gasps> like Lisa Loeb? Yeah, but but not. <laughs> yeah, but not. Yeah, but not. <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> so in 1924, America was horrified by the foyer du, or a madness shared by two, which is what that means, of two brilliant, wealthy Chicago teenagers, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. So if you want to look at the notes real quick, yeah, why, yeah, why, yeah, why you go to the socials? This is why. Um, and look at the picture that says Leopold and Loeb. This is a picture of the two. Loeb would be the dapper gentleman in the bow tie. All right. And Leopold would be the questionable looking fella in the tie. Well, they are devastatingly good looking. <laughs> devastatingly good looking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they got, they, there's some good looking guys. Well, mm. don't like them. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> don't like them. Just get that out of your head. Because they kidnapped 14-year-old Bobby Franks, bludgeoned him to death in a rented car, and then dumped his body in a culvert. Okay. Well, you hitting us with it right off the bat. Okay, cool. Yeah, just put laying it all out there. Thanks. But something that baffled me. Baffled? <laughs> yeah, this is a little side note. So this happened in 1924. You could rent cars in 1924. That was a thing. I didn't even think about that part. Because that's just such a natural thing now. I know. But yeah, in 1924, you can... Because, okay, so I live in a really old house. Yeah. My house was built in 1927. So when I hear about stuff in the 20s, it makes me relate to to my house because I like... I'm weird, and I really love old buildings. And so I like to think about how my home was lived in before I lived there. And I know that might make me sound like a crazy person. But I do that. And so it was like... 
I never think of my house as like having a driveway when it was first built. There could have been a rent car parked in your driveway. There could have been a fucking rental car in my driveway. <laughs> like they may have had a driveway. They may have. It may still be the same one you got now. <laughs> uh, I got a janky ass driveway, so it might be the same one. <laughs> Fuck those swap coat trucks. <laughs> but I know that makes me sound weird, but like I do that because my house is very, it's, it hasn't been super altered. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of really old oh, houses, no. they gut the insides and they like make it open concept floor plan type things. And my house is not like that. It has, I love it. It has the same bones as it had when it was built pretty much. There's yeah. like one, two, two wall differences and the rest is like how my house was built. It's freaking gorgeous. But love yeah, it. it made me think like rental cars in 1924. Hmm. Like that was the thing. Okay. I wonder if you had to be like 21 and have a major credit card. <laughs> like, what were the requirements? I'm going to guess there's not a whole this lot. This is something I'll be thinking about at 2 o'clock in the morning. So, Well, fine. you can get on the internet machine. <laughs> use the juggle. Get on the interweb and juggle it. <laughs> All right. So, anywho. And let us know. I'll get back to you on that. Okay. So they, Was there an enterprise? <sighs> they'll pick you up. This episode is not sponsored by Enterprise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's finish the first paragraph, shall we? Back to the back to the case. <laughs> Leopold and Loeb were attempting to commit the perfect crime just for thrills. Oh great. Although they thought their plan was foolproof, Leopold and Loeb made many mistakes that led police right to them. <laughs> The trial, featuring famous attorney Clarence Darrow, made headlines and was referred to as the trial of the century. I love it when the criminals are stupid. And they... That's great. These are the stupidest geniuses ever. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm explaining it to you. Okay. So Nathan F. Leopold Jr., born in 1904, was brought up in a wealthy and privileged privileged, I can speak, mm -hmm. Jewish neighborhood in Kenwood, Illinois. Leopold was a genius. He had an IQ of over 200, Jeez. higher than Einstein, yeah. and excelled at school. Obvs. Yeah. He spoke his first words at four months old and was able to breeze through advanced courses. By 19, Leopold had already graduated from college and was in law school. He was also fascinated with birds and was considered an accomplished I hate this word. Ornithologist. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Ornithologist. Yeah. Okay. I actually know a word. Oh, look at you go. <laughs> and he often lectured at Harvard University. Holy so he's shit. 19 at years 19? old in law school and lecturing, lecturing at Harvard as an accomplished ornithologist. Wow. So All right. You could have used your powers for good, bruh. You, yeah. You could have. Well, here, here's what happened. Okay. He was an academic prodigy, an awkward and unpleasant person, mm. and an outsider who thought that he was superior to others. Ah, okay. Well, not that. Yeah. Not considered classically handsome. This certainly influenced his shyness around others. Leopold was very much unhappy with his outward appearance, and this was clear throughout his adolescence. I just gave you a compliment. You obviously weren't that bad. Yeah, but... In comparison to his counterpart, but we'll get to that. Okay. 
Leopold believed that his inherent qualities exempted him from the same social standards as others. So he pretty much thought he could get away with anything because he was super smart and better than everybody. So, Well, great. That's Leopold. That's not a good... Oh, fuck. (laughs) So let me tell you about Richard Loeb. He was also very intelligent, but not at the same level as Leopold. Okay. Born in 1905, Richard Loeb was the son of a wealthy Sears and Roebuck vice president. So when I say these dudes were wealthy, look, hey, <laughs> when I was looking for pictures, some of the pictures of their houses popped up and it took everything I had not to just start showing houses. <laughs> but they lived they lived in mansions. We could do a Zillow. I mean, we could post it like a Zillow. I have a Zillow account. <laughs> I look at it daily. <laughs> Loeb, who had been pushed and guided by a strict governess, had also been sent to college at a young age. He was the youngest person of his time to have attained a degree at the University of Michigan. Loeb was seen as an outstanding pupil and perfect son, but there was another side to his personality, a much darker side. (laughs) Unlike Leopold, he was considered very attractive and had excellent social skills. Damn it. What? These boys have such a good upbringing and have such a bright future and they're so smart and this is what they choose to do with it. Mm-hmm. I told you they're the stupidest geniuses ever. <sighs> okay. It was at college that Leopold and Loeb became close friends. The two believed themselves to be significantly superior to others and lived without consequence in a world of money and power. So, yeah, I'm so glad they found each other. It's going to turn out re- swimmingly. <laughs> I can't even talk. <laughs> Their relationship was described as both stormy and intimate. Affectionately using the names Dickie for Loeb and Babe for Leopold, the pair used every opportunity to spend time together during the years they spent at college. They were inseparable companions from the beginning, each finding something in each other that they wanted. Leopold was obsessed with Loeb. Loeb liked having a loyal companion on his adventures. The two were lovers, with Loeb being the dominant personality. In fact, his see that. Yeah. In fact, his dominance over Leopold, who came to share Loeb's delusional way of thinking, led to what is known as foile imposé, which is a subset of foile adieu, in which a dominant person's delusions are taken on by his submissive partner, influencing Ooh. them to follow a particular irrational belief they would not have otherwise perceived on their own. So Richard Loeb's personality was so... Intoxicating. Yes, it was magnetic. Mm-hmm. And Leopold, being um, the weaker one as far as social skills are concerned, was like sucked in. Yeah, absolutely. Loeb liked the fact that Leopold worshipped him. Mm-hmm. And with his God complex and all. Yeah. And Leopold being just like so incredibly brilliant that he wanted to keep him together. So like it was a it was a good opposites mm-hmm. match. Yes. Thing. Yeah. Richard of. Richard Loeb wanted that submissive, brilliant partner. Um, yeah, but sidekick almost, and Leopold looked up to this very uh, handsome, manly, magnetic personality mm-hmm. of Loeb. So, like, it's crazy. And they were both on the same intellectual level, mm-hmm. pretty much. Yeah, so they could relate so to each could, other. Yeah, and their upbringings were comparable. They were both very, very wealthy, very smart, and they just felt like they could get each other. They were soulmates, pretty much. Yeah. 
they had the added stress of a secret relationship because homosexuality was frowned upon at the time. Yes. The pair became obsessed with reading detective fiction and true crime. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What? <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> we ain't going this far, though. Yeah. <laughs> Soon they began committing small acts of theft, vandalism, and arson. Eventually, they decided to plan and commit the perfect crime. It is debated as to who first suggested the idea, but most believe it was Loeb because sure. he was the leader of the pack, so to speak. <laughs> no matter whose idea it was, both boys participated in the planning. It was simple. Rent a car under a fake name. Find a wealthy victim, preferably a boy since girls were more closely watched. Mm-hmm. Kill him in the car with a chisel. Then dump the body in a culvert. A chisel? A chisel. I don't know why the chisel. I don't. But that was the plan. Okay, well, we did get our first answer of what the requirements are to rent a car. Obviously, you don't have to show a valid ID. Mm-mm. Good God. Yeah. Okay. It was the 1920. <laughs> <laughs> what are rules? Even though the victim was going to be killed immediately, they planned on asking for a ransom from the victim's family. That's fucked up. Yeah. The family would receive a letter instructing them to pay $10,000 in, quote-unquote, old bills. That's a lot of money. Yeah, for 1924. Yeah. But they they were rich. So True, but damn. Pocket change to them, I don't know. Mm. Which they would later be asked to throw from a moving train. So they asked for $10,000 in old bills and wanted the people to throw it from a moving train, and then they would retrieve it. Oh. Uh... <laughs> That's the plan. That's how well, geniuses plan murders. I don't I don't know. Okay. A little quirky. <laughs> they read that in some like spy novel. <laughs> <laughs> you know they did. <laughs> After considering a number of people to be their victim, including their own fathers, Leopold and Loeb decided to leave the victim up to chance and circumstance. Ah, yeah, because that works out so well. Mm. On May 21st, 1924, the men were ready to put their plan into effect. After renting a car and covering its license plate, Leopold and Loeb needed a victim. <laughs> They're covering their tracks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Doing their due, 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 due diligence. diligence. <laughs> Around 5 o'clock, they spotted 14-year-old Bobby Franks, who was walking home from school. Mm-hmm. I have a picture of Bobby. Okay. Oh. And he was a dapper young lad as yes, well. Yes, he was. He's sweet little mm-hmm. foot. I don't know. Growing up in the 1920s, I mean, 14, he was probably pretty tough. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. He, God. Oh, he looks so he was, young. He was pampered as well, so I don't know. I saw a picture of his house also. His was bigger than the other two. Okay, well, ma'am. <laughs> You're going to have to give me some house photos. Okay, we'll, we'll Google houses. You're talking about the house photos. I You're going to have to now. <sighs> Fuck. Yep. Okay. Loeb, who knew Bobby because he was a neighbor and a distant cousin. Oh, my God. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Lured him into the car by asking Bobby to discuss a new tennis racket because Bobby loved tennis. So he tricked his cousin into the car talking about tennis. Once he climbed into the front seat of the car, they took off. Within minutes, Bobby was hit multiple times in the head with a chisel, dragged from the front seat to the back, and then had a cloth shoved down his throat. Lying on the floor of the back seat, 
covered with a rug, Bobby died from suffocation. Oh, my God. It is believed that Leopold was driving and Loeb was in the back seat and the actual killer, but this is still unclear. As Bobby lay dying or dead in the back seat, Leopold and Loeb drove toward a hidden culvert in the marshlands near Wolf Lake, a place Leopold knew because of his bird watching. On the way, they stopped twice, once to get rid of Bobby's clothing, like they took all of his clothes off and bagged it up, and then they burned it later. Cool. But they stopped once to take all of his clothes off, and another time to buy dinner. Sirs. This is not the first time that's happened. Somebody else went to Arby's. Oh, yeah. That was in our, um, I don't remember. It was a sacrifice episode, I think. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It sure was. God, it works up an appetite. I don't know. They're they're using all their energy. (laughs) (laughs) We need the snacks. (laughs) After dark, Leopold and Loeb found the culvert, shoved the body inside, and poured hydrochloric acid on Bobby's face and genitals to try and hide the identity. What the? And where do you just get hydrochloric acid? And that's not how you hide the identity. Is it next door to the <laughs> rental car place? It probably is. It's all the same place. It's inside the general store. That's where you do all of it. The general store. The so ge- we're going oh. back to Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> they went to the general store. It was probably a corner general store in 19. Did they buy fabric and wheat also? Probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> the trade and post. They went down to the trade and post. <laughs> oh my fuck yeah it's where Brookshire's is now <laughs> stop it stop it <laughs> that put the, puts the proximity in perspective for me from my house in 1920s I was using yours <laughs> 1920s this, this oh is taking God. place in your neighborhood now <laughs> wow you just, didn't, you just don't know it <laughs> Okay. On their way home, Leopold and Loeb stopped to call the Franks home to tell the family that Bobby had been kidnapped. That was their ransom call. They also mailed the ransom letter. They thought they had committed the perfect murder. (laughs) Little did they know that by the morning, Bobby Frank's body had already been discovered and the police were on the way to solving the murder. They worked faster in 1924 <laughs> oh, than they do now. Not in Breckenridge. <laughs> Not in Breckenridge, honey. Damn. All right. So well, that's impressive. Yeah. Okay. Despite having spent at least six months planning, <clears throat> Leopold and Loeb made a lot of mistakes. Obviously. Let's hear their mistakes. I, I want this. The first was the disposal of the body. Leopold and Loeb thought that the culvert would keep the body hidden until it had become decomposed. Mm -hmm. However, they didn't realize that they had placed the body with the feet sticking out. Mm -hmm. The next morning, it was discovered and identified. So, No. I have a picture. It says crime scene. It's not really crime scene photos. It's a picture of the culvert. We haven't had a good crime scene photo in a while. Yeah. But that's where he was. Yeah, he was in that culvert. Oh. With his feet sticking out. Thank goodness. Because well, they found him right stupid. away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Near the culvert, the police found a pair of glasses, which turned out to be specific enough to be traced back to Leopold. <laughs> when asked about the glasses, Leopold explained they must have fallen out of his jacket when he fell while bird watching. Okay. Although the explanation made sense, the police continued to look into Leopold's whereabouts. Yeah. Good he, job. of course, said he had spent the day with Loeb. Yeah. It didn't take long for Leopold and Loeb's alibis to break down. It was discovered that Leopold's car, which they had said they had driven around all day in, had actually been at home all day. Leopold's chauffeur had been fixing it. Idiots. <laughs> Sirs! <laughs> my chauffeur. Yeah, I'm fucked up, A.A. Ron. Oh, my God. So bad. So Oy. bad. Think. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't think. But if, look, if you're going to spend six months planning this shit... <laughs> Let's think details here. Let's just go a little bit further. Okay. Go back to the drawing board. On May 31st, just 10 days after the murder, both 18-year-old Loeb and 19-year-old Leopold confessed to the murder. I have their mug shots. Well, that's good. Yeah, so go to the picture that says, oh. And so that's Leopold at the top, and that's Loeb at the bottom. Ma'am, why you got that face on your face? Who you got the hots for? The bottom? Lobe. I kind of like your shaved head. <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> ma'am. It's kind of Ma'am. I know he's a piece of shit. <laughs> I know that, okay? <laughs> but he's kind of got the Channing Tatum thing going on right now. <laughs> See, I just... <laughs> I could just leave a Channing Tatum. I don't give a shit about that. Ooh. I'm sure that's an unpopular opinion, but whatevs. Okay. okay, so back to the horribleness that yes. your lover My committed. Lover. <laughs> <laughs> the age of the victim, the brutality of the crime, the wealth of the defendants, and the confessions all made this murder front page news, of course, because what else is happening in 1924? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Unless you're at the general store. It was right next to the <laughs> rent-a-car ad. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It still baffles me. <laughs> the more we say it, it doesn't sound real. I wonder if we can find an ad <laughs> from 1920. I'm going to Google that shit. I'm here for that. Okay. You're, at 2 a.m., my Google history I is going to be ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so with the public immediately against the boys and a large amount of evidence tying them to the murder... It was almost certain that Leopold and Loeb were going to receive the death penalty. Ooh. Fearing for his nephew's life, Loeb's uncle went to a famed defense attorney, Clarence Darrow, and begged him to take the case. Darrow was not asked to free the boys since they were obviously guilty. Yeah. Instead, Darrow was asked to save the boys' lives by getting them life sentences rather than the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Darrow, being a longtime advocate against the death penalty, took the case. So I have a picture of Clarence, the boys with Clarence. Okay. He looks very no nonsense. He scares me a little. A little bit. Mm -hmm. The boys look scared of him too. Little. Well, I mean, can you blame them? But, uh, I, I wouldn't argue with him. I just lost my case because I wouldn't argue with him. Nope. I'd be like, oh, oh, uh, I, yep, I'm done. Yep. You in. (laughs) (laughs) On July 21st, 1924, the trial against Leopold and Loeb began. Most people thought Darrow would plead them not guilty by reason of insanity. But in a surprising last minute Shyamalan twist. What a twist. (laughs) I love those. Darrow had them plead guilty. 
Hmm. With their guilty plea, the trial would no longer require a jury because it would become a sentencing trial. Mm-hmm. Darrow believed that it would be harder for one man to live with a decision to hang Leopold and Loeb than it would be for 12 who would share the decision. Okay. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. The fate of the two was resting solely with Judge John R. Caverly, or Caverly, however you want to pronounce that. I like Caverly. Yeah. We're in the South. It's Caverly. Caverly. <laughs> That's how we do things down here. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. That was that so was, podunk. That whole know. interaction was so podunk. <laughs> the prosecution had over 80 witnesses. Oh, my God. <laughs> that presented the cold-blooded murder in all its gory details. Which, a lot of witnesses. <laughs> yeah. We ain't going to get into that. He's guilty. Mm-hmm. They're, they're totally they guilty. They did it. Oh, yeah. my God. The defense focused on psychology, especially the boys' upbringing. Okay. It was said they were in court smiling and laughing and performing like celebrities at a red carpet event as the media, astonished, snapped photographs. All right, Jesse. So I have a picture of them being a little too happy during the trial. Okay. So it's the one that says trial. Okay. And they're like walking back to the courtroom and we are laughing and we've got our bowler hat. One of them has what looks like maybe a bowler hat and the other one has on what looks like maybe a fedora. Yeah. That's entirely too happy. Mm-hmm. They don't care. They Nothing's, don't care. They don't care. They are so arrogant and they're smarter than everyone else in the room. Douchebags. Mm-hmm. They're going in the box. In the box. Locked away. So Leopold and Loeb strolled about like dapper stars wearing expensive tailored suits and enjoying the hysterical outpour of emotion brought by the public. I'm sure they were eating up all of that attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On August 22nd, 1924, Clarence Darrow gave his final summation. It lasted approximately two hours and is considered one of the best speeches of his life. Okay. Darrow argued that the physical environment contributed directly towards the murderer's actions. He further went on to say about the death penalty that an eye-for-an-eye execution was inhumane and barbaric. With psychiatric testimony introduced in the hearing, the defense argued that mental disease should be considered in the sentencing even without an insanity plea. It was suggested that Leopold and Loeb suffered from impaired judgment, claiming both young men could not distinguish. distinguish. What? Distinguish? Distinguish. Yeah. Right from wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Could not determine. Yeah, so he's saying, even though we're not pleading insanity, they weren't in their right mind, so let's consider the fact that, you know, they aren't psychologically sound. Whatevs, whatevs. Okay. After listening to all the evidence and thinking carefully on the matter, Judge Caverly announced his decision on September 19th, 1924. What we got? Judge Caverly sentenced Leopold and Loeb to jail for 99 years for kidnapping. Each? Yes. Okay, good. Good. And for the rest of their natural lives for murder. Cool. He also recommended that they never be eligible for parole. Yeah. But we'll get to it. Oh, great. Leopold and Loeb were originally separated, but by 1931, they were again close. In 1932, together they opened a school in the prison (laughs) to teach other prisoners. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because they're brilliant and taught at Harvard, and so now they're (laughs) teachers. (laughs) Okay. Richard Loeb was known to receive a generous monthly allowance from his family, which he gave to other inmates, including another prisoner, James Day, as a bribe not to harm him. James Day was actually his roommate. 
So um, I do have a picture of Richard Loeb in prison if you okay. want to go look at it real quick. Yeah. It says Loeb prison. There's your boyfriend no. in jail. No. Oh, he's got his hair back. You don't want him now? He ain't cute no more. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> what happened? But his dad was like Sears and Roebuck executive person. <sighs> Are you back in? (laughs) Are you getting a generous allowance? (laughs) No, I'm not. When the warden cut Loeb's allowance, Uh Day was angered by this and threatened Loeb. Oh, shit. On January 28th, 1936, 30-year-old Loeb was attacked in the shower by James Day. He was slashed over 50 times with a straight razor and died of his wounds. Oh, my God. As he died, he was held in the arms of his lover and soulmate, Leopold. Loeb's last words to Leopold were, quote, I think I'm going to make it, end quote. But he didn't. He didn't make it. No. Thoroughly destroyed by Richard Loeb's death, Nathan Leopold was deeply depressed and bitter at being left all alone again in his life. He was reported to have screamed for hours in his cell until he was taken to a psychiatric hospital for an undisclosed time period. He spent several years being specially escorted by guards and was not given a cellmate under the circumstance that he too may be a victim of violence from his fellow inmates. Mm. Nathan then experienced guilt for his crimes and began to dream of life outside of prison. Leopold wrote an autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years. I have a picture. Really? Yeah. I have a picture of Leopold in prison. He did lots of interviews and stuff in his older years. Okay. But here is him. Working on his book in prison. Oh, So there's Leopold. Okay. So don't like you. Mm-hmm. No, I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. Me either. I'm shocked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After spending 33 years in prison, mm-hmm. 53-year-old Leopold was paroled in March of 1958. What? And moved to Puerto Rico. Became an x-ray technician. What? And got married in 1961. What? hmm Ma'am. So I guess 33 years they thought he paid for I don't fucking know. That's all I know about that. Despite his feelings of regret, Nathan Leopold was quoted to still be madly in love with Richard Loeb and kept a framed photograph of him on his bedroom mantle. Leopold died on August 30th, 1971, from a heart attack at age 66. So, I just want to know how his wife felt about the framed photograph of his lover, ex-lover, on the mantle was in their a, bedroom. Was it a wife? I'm just, I well, married. in 19... Yeah. What was it? 1950, that, 1961? Yeah. It would it, be a wife. It would be a woman. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. How would she feel about that? No, I, mean, I would not be okay with that. I mean, no, I said, how would she feel about that? Like, I would, oh, I would not be okay. I with know that. you wouldn't be okay with it. I wouldn't either. That would be a little uncomfortable. I would be totes fine with you having the photos. Mm-hmm. Look at him every now and then. Yeah. Go through your grieving process in whatever way that, you need to. That was to. a tragic thing to go through. But on the mantle of my bedroom. But, um, nah, son. no, Mm-mm. no, not displayed anywhere. Mm-mm. But yeah, that's it. That's my case. All right. My tale of Foiledu. That was really good. Thank you. I just found it on the interweb. I had never heard that story before. And so 
I just Googled like Folia Du cases to see what popped up and I found some like some weird shit. Oh, there's a lot of weird shit. Cause you know, we've touched on this subject before. Yeah, we did twins and both of our cases and <clears throat> twins popped up. Mm-hmm. In the Foyleo Do search. Yeah. Oh my God. That was crazy. Go back to the twins episode. Yeah. Oh if y'all haven't goodness. listened to that, do that. Mm hmm. I mean, all some quarters of chaos right there. Finish this one first. And, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, go listen yeah. to Because I haven't done mine yet. So yeah. y'all just hold on. <laughs> wait a minute. Hold up. Wait a minute. I, what is wrong with me today? With it. What is wrong with me? No. <laughs> it's old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For my folia do case, we're going to jump over to a whole different country and skip about 30 years. Okay. Exactly. Actually, not about. Ooh. <laughs> I just did the math that fast. You mathed so I did. fast. I did it. <laughs> That was an easy one. Don't give me credit for the credit for that. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> you can't math either. <laughs> no, I really I can't. It's kind of sad. <laughs> hey, we have listeners in this country. We do have listeners in that country. I know. Like a lot. Hey y'all. <laughs> I, I that's, what do they say there? I good they don't say y'all. No. And it's not Australia. So they're not going to say mate. Do you say mate? Please let know. us know. Do you? If you, I feel extremely uneducated right now. If you are a New Zealand listener, what, message what us and, and instead what, of hey y'all, what do you say instead of y'all? Yeah, I want to know. And Australian listeners, please don't get upset at my usage of mate. <laughs> yeah, because we have some of those too. Yes, we do. <laughs> okay, sorry. Please don't come at us. <laughs> we love you. <laughs> Okay, okay, all right. <laughs> My case is about Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume. Mm-hmm. Few major crimes have reverberated through New Zealand history as much as the now near mythic case of the Parker-Hume murder. The brutal killing of Honora Parker in 1954 by her daughter Pauline and her best friend Juliet remains one of the most notorious events to occur in the country over the past century. Ooh. Oh, no. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm in. To this day, the case leaves a grisly mark on Christchurch. A media sensation in its day, the Parker Hume trial became the stuff of armchair psychology speculation, pop culture curiosities, and a worldwide moral panic regarding the supposed inherent darkness of young women. Bum, bum, bum. I don't mind it. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> In a society preoccupied with the lurid details of true crime, it was inevitable that the case of Pauline and Juliet would become the subject of decades' worth of interest. How could a story about an obsessive pair of teenage girls driven by delusions to kill not inspire such fascination? Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm here for it. In 1954, it seemed utterly inconceivable that the two girls under the age of 16 would ever consider an act as heinous as murder— let alone go through with their violent plans, the details of the death of Honora Parker remain seared into the public consciousness for that very reason. Yikes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. They they didn't think it through very well either. 
continue to be terrible planners, murderers. <laughs> yeah, we like it. <laughs> so a little bit of background. Pauline Yvonne Parker was a working-class Christchurch girl who attended the local high school and often found herself isolated because of her health problems. She suffered from a condition known as osteomyelitis, a kind of bone infection that impacts the arms and legs, especially of younger patients. Ew. It's not fun. No, it doesn't. At all. It doesn't sound fun. It's very uncomfortable. Juliet entered her life as a teenager when the English girl moved with her family to New Zealand. Juliet um, also had her own health problems. She had been diagnosed with tuberculosis as a child. She briefly lived in the Caribbean and South Africa before New Zealand since doctors had advised that a warmer climate would improve her well-being. A lot of people did that back then for mm-hmm. tuberculosis. It helped them breathe better in warmer climates and all mm-hmm. that. Unlike Pauline, Juliet came from a comfortably middle-class background as her father was a celebrated physicist, Dr. Henry Rainsford Hume, one of the key scientists in the creation of the British H-bomb. Oh, my. Hello. The girls quickly bonded over their shared illnesses, which forced them to sit out PE classes. I'm sure I they mean, liked that. I wouldn't mind that at As all. As a teenage I girl, I hated PE. frequently tried to get out of PE. By any means necessary. Any means. I forgot my uniform. I'm on my period. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. I'm dying. I mean, just whatever. Yeah. I have a note. Nobody <laughs> wants to run in front of other people. I mean, that was me. <laughs> I did not want to run. I am not a runner. Ma'am. I don't look. I run funny. I, I ain't cute running. Mm-mm. I don't like to sweat. Mm-mm. And my boobs are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and as a 16-year-old girl, you don't know how to properly harness. Right, right. That area. We haven't discovered, like, the great sports brawls and mm-hmm. stuff yet. Mm. Yeah. At 16. I have one good sports bra. It was for cheerleading. Yeah. And I was not wasting that at PE. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was the most unathletic cheerleader ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, childhood trauma's coming back. I need photos. <laughs> Speaking of photos, let's go see the girls, shall we? Okay. <laughs> Pauline and Juliet. Okay. Why Why do these 16-year-old girls look like 40-year-old moms? I thought the same thing. I had to make sure yeah. that that was... It was the times. Legitimately Because when them. you zoom in, you look at their faces, they look young. But when you're, like, far back, like that one... She looks like the babushka lady. Oh, my God. She looks I like the babushka lady. I had the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> you keep reading, but I'm going to show you a picture here. Okay, okay. <laughs> Let's pull her up. No, not no? Babushka Lady. You got something better? I'm pretty sure I have a cheerleading picture on my phone. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Put it on the drive. All right. It did not take long for their friendship to become extremely intense. Both lovers of fiction, they began to create their own stories that soon developed into their own deeply detailed fantasy life. They would craft stories, then write to one another in character as their creations. They revered actors and artists and even imagined their own religious system devoid of Christianity where music and art were celebrated. I kind of like it. Get it. it. (laughs) Get it, girls. Both girls hoped to sell their stories to Hollywood and be together as collaborators and friends for the rest of their lives. Hi, Brittany. (laughs) Y'all totes should have stopped there. (laughs) Yeah, just just stop with that. Follow that dream, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they tried to. 
The intensity of their friendship concerned both families. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm getting Oy. there. Oy. Pauline's parents were especially concerned that their closeness was an indicator of homosexuality, which was a criminal act in New Zealand at the time, as well as being labeled as serious mental illness. You know, I don't understand. I don't understand a lot of things about yeah. the past, but one of them being how one sexuality can be. Why? How can it be considered criminal? Like, who are you harming? No one. If you have an, no one, a consenting intimate relationship with somebody, right? Who is that hurting? It's not hurting the two people in the relationship. No, definitely not. They're enjoying. <laughs> they're enjoying themselves. They don't yeah, give a fuck about what you're doing. Yeah. They're not hurting anyone. Mind your business. They ain't coming at you for being straight. Shut up. Yeah. All of you people now. Y'all know. Mind your business. Sorry. There's my rant. No. It's a good one. It's totally. Yep. (laughs) I agree. That's not a cheer picture, but that's Toad's a homecoming picture. No, we need cheer photos. Okay. (laughs) LGBTQ plus people could be treated for homosexuality in institutions. Oh, my fuck. Uh Uh-huh. Much as they were in many countries around the world, by this point in time, both girls were so obsessed with one another that they would become withdrawn and even physically ill when separated. Eventually, after Juliet's parents separated and her father resigned from his job as the university rector, it was decided that Juliet would be sent to live in South Africa with relatives. Mm. This decision was apparently related to her health and as a way to make the divorce somewhat easier on her. But... Both she and Pauline saw it as an act of war against one another. Of course. Yes. As most teenage girls would. All the drama. Yes. Growing hysterical at the possibility of being separated against their will, the girls plan to go to South Africa together, then head to America to become world-famous writers. Of course. They didn't lose the Hollywood dream. Oh, no. The major impediment to this dream, they decided, was Pauline's mother, Honora. She got in the way. (sighs) Well... Not anymore. In their mind, she was in the way. Yeah. On the afternoon of June 22nd, 1954, Pauline and Juliet accompanied Honora for a walk through Victoria Park. In a wooded area, a hundred meters or so down from the main path, the girls killed Honora, bludgeoning her to death with half a brick encased in an old silk stocking. Mm. (laughs) Y'all. Yep. Here we go. Ladies, ladies. You better say more of that. After finishing the deed, the girls fled to a nearby tea kiosk where they had eaten with Honora only minutes before. Both were covered in blood. They told the shop owners that Pauline's mother had fallen and hit her head. Oh, my stars. It didn't take long for that story to fall apart. Honora's body was so brutally beaten with protective wounds across her hands and neck that no mere fall could have caused such damage. Like, think, think it out. Think, did just, just. I mean, I'm glad you didn't. But, but if she has defensive wounds, like, they, they were 16. It's fine. Say there was an attacker. Yeah, I have a photo of the path where she was found. Okay, that looks like Pretty. a love, lovely walking path. Yeah, it does. I would go there. I would totes go there. The media frenzy erupted from the moment the case was made public. The newspapers made note that the grotesque evidence discovered in the girls' diaries, as well as their mm. supposed lesbian passions. Oh my. The defense case. Mm-hmm. 
The defense case rested on having both girls declared not guilty by reason of insanity, which the court shot down after having them declared sane enough to stand trial. The question surrounding them was a reductive one. Are they mad or bad? I don't know. The public consensus was that Parker and Hume were either psychologically broken creatures or evil lesbian temptresses. The pair were infamously described as dirty-minded little girls, quote-unquote. Oh, my stars. I really hate this part. But don't don't worry. Somebody, like, turns it around. Okay? Okay. This is... Give me a sec. Lesbianism was baked into the cases of both the prosecution and the defense. The defense counsel, Brian McClelland, said, well... The problem was they both confessed to it, and the only defense was um, insanity. But how could we find the two of them insane? And then this chap, Reginald Medicott, Medlicott, I think that's how you say it, comes along with this wonderful idea that they could have fully ado. Mm. So we went with that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Do what you got for me. me. Had they been found not guilty by reason of insanity, the chances are they would have been incarcerated indefinitely in a psychiatric hospital. And one of the most common treatments at the time for homosexuality was a prefrontal lobotomy. Mm-mm-mm. Not okay. This nope. was considered the best choice for the defense. Not a guilty verdict that allowed them to serve their time and move on with their lives. What the fuck? Like, this is... So- yeah, let's give them a lobotomy instead. <laughs> That'll fix everything. Mm-hmm. It only took the jury under two and a half hours to reach their verdict. Both Parker and Hume were definitely found guilty of murder. Mm-hmm. A 1954 news report noted that after the vic- after the verdict was delivered, Parker looked across at Hume, whispered something, and they both smiled. As minors, they were too young to be considered for the death penalty. Both spent five years in prison before being released to live under new identities. That's not enough. Still under the watchful eye of the New Zealand justice system. (laughs) I just... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm not done. It ain't enough. In 1994, New Zealand director Peter Jackson, then best known for hyperviolent DIY horror slapstick like Bad Taste and Brain Dead. Gonna have to find this stuff. (laughs) He released Heavenly Creatures. Cannot find it. Don't know where you can watch this. Yeah. I've tried. Um, it exists, but I don't know where you can find it. I've heard that's a thing. Mm-hmm. He had been encouraged to adapt the true story for the film by his wife and collaborator, Fran Walsh, as both had grown up knew- knowing about the case and how it had impacted their homeland. Instead of focusing on the media circus that surrounded the trial for the murder itself, Jackson and Walsh decided to delve more into the friendship between Pauline and Juliet. Their relationship was frequently mischaracterized by the press. Yes. With the rumor persisting to this day that the girls were in love. And so what if they were? Yeah, mind your fucking business. Yeah, something that both women had repeatedly denied. Understandable. But also, again... So what? Mm-hmm. The film doesn't exactly confirm or refute this, but its portrayal of such a close-knit and wholly codependent relationship as far as it's, like, more sympathetic than anything in the press and, like, ever. Yeah. Pretty much about this case. 
The most intriguing aspect of the Heavenly Creatures film is its development of Juliet and Pauline's fantasy world and how they allow themselves to sink into it beyond the realms of reality. In one scene, Juliet has a panic attack after her parents announce that they are going away and plan to leave her behind. And she retreats into the fourth world, their version of heaven. Oh my. This is her safe place. And it becomes visible to Pauline, too, which acts as a confirmation for the pair that their world is a real one. The right one. Yeah. My world is the right one, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think so. <laughs> I like it. It works. Mm-hmm. It's fine. While Heavenly Creatures is deeply empathetic towards Hume and Parker, it pulls no punches in showing the abhorrent brutality of their murder. Honora's death is deeply uncomfortable to watch, and Jackson makes sure that the viewer understands just how hard it is to kill someone with a brick in a stocking, thus extending the agony further. I really want to see this, though. I know. By the end of the movie, you're left with a feeling of immense sadness for everyone involved. It's a brilliant movie, one that probably did more to soften the image of Parker and Hume than many decades of press, all the gossip and all the crap that went around with that. It doesn't excuse their crimes, but it allows the audience to understand how easy it is for two isolated girls to lose themselves in a fantastical world that was much kinder to them than their reality. Okay, but you still don't kill somebody. I really want to watch that movie. I really want to find it. Like, I don't know if there's an old DVD. Hey, anybody got the DVD? Can you send it to us? Like, I, I mean, get it on VHS. <laughs> Ooh, we can find, we'll go to Goodwill, go find a VHS player. Pretty sure my mom still has a VHS. Oh player. my God. Yes. If not, she's hanging on to about a hundred Disney movies for no reason. <laughs> Y'all remember the old school Disney movies and the plastic boxes? Yeah, we did that. I had them too. I think my grandmother had almost like every single one of them. It was great. We were about that life. We were about that Disney life. What's wrong with that? Not a damn thing. Except now we're in reality and we find out that, hey, it's not happily ever after. (sighs) Yeah. There's bills and kids Mm. and diapers and work now I'm depressed. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but they kind of killed it. <laughs> Damn it. I really expected life to go great. <laughs> no problems. Well, Disney, you lied. <laughs> they lied. <laughs> Amongst other crimes. A lot. <laughs> Both Parker and Hume are still alive and living purposefully quiet lives. Well, yeah. For a time, both women lived in Scotland but have made no attempts to contact one another in decades. Contrary to popular popular belief, they were not legally forbidden from doing so. After she was released, Pauline Parker became a devout Roman Catholic and spent time running a writing school for children. Oh, my stars. Her sister said that she now lives a near-reclusive life, not unlike a nun, and that Pauline, quote-unquote, committed the most terrible crime and has spent 40 years repaying it by keeping away from people and doing her own little thing. Okay. Juliet um, converted to Mormonism and after spending time as a flight attendant, moved to the Scottish village of mm -mm. (laughs) Port Mahomet Mahomet. and began writing novels under the name Anne Perry. 
She has become a renowned author of historical crime fiction. Her Thomas Pitt series has over 30 books to its name and has won her numerous awards. Okay. In 2017, she announced that she was moving to Hollywood in order to more effectively promote her work for film and TV adaptations. Perry has given more public interviews and commented on the murder more than Parker, but still prefers to keep that part of her life out of the limelight. In 2009, the writer Peter Graham tried to contact both Pauline and Ann Perry to interview them for a book he was writing on the murder case. After Perry ignored his initial letter of request, he called her. And after she chastised him for dragging up the darkest part of her past, she told Graham, I've forgotten everything anyway. That's what I would say if I didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember. Leave me alone. Yeah, fuck off. Go away. But now she's like... Now she's like a famous author and stuff. That's crazy. She lived her dream? Yeah, she went to Hollywood. Yikes. So there's my case. Well, folie adieu. <laughs> adieu. Okay. Wow. So, so I want to watch Heavenly Creatures. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to see what the hype is with the Ampere books. A little bit. I'm going to have to uh, look and, into those. And it's so fucked up. It's so fucked, fucked up. up. And why aren't they still in jail? <laughs> I don't... I don't understand that. Yeah, one. beat her with a brick in a stocking. And they did five years. Five years. I just, I, I cannot. I cannot. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'm Googling heavenly, heavenly creatures. While you, um. I can't find a cheerleading picture. I thought I had mom, one on my phone. Mom. Okay. Story about mom, by the way. So I told her again that it was kind of fucked up that she wasn't listening. True. And told her that we kind of talk shit about her sometimes. <laughs> but we love you. Hoping that it would motivate her. Mm-hmm. But if she doesn't listen, I guess it doesn't do any good. But she's like, I don't know how to do the podcast thing. So, as we said at PJ's Coffee, I showed her which button is the podcast button. Okay. And made her look up and follow. So, whether she presses that podcast button again, I don't know. She tells me she's going to listen when she gets on the treadmill. I have faith in you, Mom. You can do it. But I know I'm going to dig up. I've got junior high and high school cheerleading pictures somewhere. Yeah, we really need those. I looked like a whole different human. Well, that was a fucked up story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We are changing up our little last segment again. Yep. We're moving on from spooky stories. Because my mom, who doesn't listen to the podcast, <laughs> bought me this book <laughs> for Christmas. I love the book, though. Mm-hmm. It's called Serial Killer Trivia, Cold Cases. Yeah. Fascinating facts and chilling details from the creepiest unsolved murders ever by Michelle Kaminsky. I'm so excited. Hit me. I want, I, I'm ready. No, you don't get to answer nothing. I'm going to answer it in my head. Here's what we're going to do. Okay. I'm going to choose a question out of the book. Okay. Every week. I'm going to ask you people. You people. <laughs> we, we will also post the question mm-hmm. on the Facebook. Mm-hmm. And whoever gets it right gets a gold star. Yes. And we will shout out your name. Mm-hmm. And then I'll read you a tidbit about it next week. I like it. 
I was going to, so, okay, there's been like three people that have sent me like little tiny topics and I was going to read one of those today too, instead of just asking a question and then saying goodbye. Yeah. But I almost died. Yeah. And all I had time to do was write my case. Migraines are a bitch. You're excused. Okay. I had a migraine and let me tell y'all, this is a PSA for the people of the world. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you suddenly decide happy new year, um, new year, new me. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and you're going to diet. <laughs> Don't do that. N- not do right it in away. Moderation. <laughs> Wean yourself, friends. <laughs> Don't do a drastic because out everything. if you just say, I'm going to eat healthy and inadvertently cut out. I didn't do this purposefully. Mm-hmm. Inadvertently cut out 99% of your sugar and carbs. Your body don't like it. No, it does not. No. I had the worst migraine I've ever had in my life that spanned two and a half days. Yeah. Oh, it was so bad. And she came to work. I had to. This bitch still came to work. I had to come to work because we were short-staffed. And because I'm a fucking G. Yeah. But. My God. (laughs) Puking and everything, y'all. Yeah. This bitch is amazing. I'm a badass. Mm -hmm. I can't help it. (laughs) I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) But when I finally came to the realization um, that my body was probably rejecting the healthy. (laughs) Yeah. And I broke down and ate some like really crappy food. I mean, it was delicious. (laughs) Like (laughs) really bad for me food last night. Mm -hmm. My headache immediately went away. Mm -hmm. And I immediately felt better. Yeah. So here we are. Don't starve your body. My body wants to be chonky. My, hashtag mom bod for life. <laughs> mom bods are sexy. But yeah, I'm just going to have to um, revamp the. Uh, yeah, just revamp it. Don't revamp don't the plan. totally cut all that out because your body said no. I'm not abandoning the plan. I'm just reworking. Mm-hmm. The plan. There you go. But because I almost died. I'm just proud you figured it out, y'all. She was miserable. It, it was, was so sad. I know I almost die like on a monthly basis. But, like <laughs> that is true. I had convinced but- <laughs> myself I had a brain tumor. <laughs> like I was like, oh is this one section of my brain? <laughs> WebMD says I'm dying. I'm pretty sure they know do the truth. Not to do WebMD, <laughs> ma'am. <laughs> I'm telling you, them two o'clock Googles. Y'all think I'm playing? You know better. <laughs> okay, so. Apparently, like, the first two, it's just the first two. First okay. two questions are about the same killer. Okay. So I'm just going to pick one. Let's see. We're going to go with this one because it's harder. Fuck. All right. <laughs> All right. Because I know every one of you bitches is going to Google it and cheat. So I'm going to make it cheat. harder. Try to do it on your own first. Do not cheat. Come on. Honor system, friends. Integrity. Yes. Yeah. I know. They're all going to cheat. Okay. (laughs) Here's our first question. Okay. Okay. Are y'all listening? What profession did several victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer have in common? So, I'll read it one more time. One more time. One more time. What profession did several victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer have in common? Your time starts now. Do, 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 do. I will post the question on the social media. Okay. And see if somebody can answer us before the recording next Friday. That's your so time limit. You have from Wednesday to Friday to answer the question. First 
person to answer it correctly. Wins our acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) May the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's perfect. Okay. That's the end of the episode. That's all we got. That's all I got. Well, um, I'm going to bid y'all adieu. I do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) The office reference. (laughs) You do? I do. (laughs) I was hoping you would get it. I finally did one. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) Yes. I love it. I love it when we do that. It's a thing. All right. I appreciate y'all listening. Very much. Listening to our craziness. Mm -hmm. Our possible for later. We stay tuned. Bye. <laughs> okay. Shared psychoses. <laughs> okay. We're all mad here. It's more fun that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, friends, come back next week, please. For the madness. Okay. Bye. Thanks for hanging out with us. Don't forget to visit us on Facebook and Instagram for episode picks and announcements. Please rate and review on Apple, Spotify, and Facebook. We want to give a huge shout-out to Stephen Goetzky for editing, Greg Weaver for music, and our very own Amanda Hagen for art. We'll talk at you next week.